In this podcast, Andy Palmer from Tamer talks about the emerging world of data ops and what businesses could do to succeed. So stay tuned. So welcome everyone to Future of Data podcast. Uh, this is an exciting uh, session today. So today we have one of the guests that very few times we, 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 we are fortunate enough to get who actually represent the future of data, who has a good stake in it and give us a very sort of holistic perspective of what's going on. So we have Andy Palmer, uh, co-founder and CEO of Tamer. Let me give you a, a brief um, introduction. So Andy um, is a serial entrepreneur who specialized in accelerating the growth of mission-driven startups. Andy has helped found and or fund more than 50 innovative companies in technologies, healthcare, and life science. Uh, Andy's unique blend of strategy, of perspective, and discipline, tactical execution is suited to environment where uncertainty is the rule rather than the exception. Andy has a special, specific person, a passion for projects at the intersection of computer science and life science. Most recently, Andy co-founded Tamer, a next-gen data curation company, and Coalabs, a startup club in the heart of Harvard Square, Cambridge, um, Mass. And some of the specialties that Andy has is software, sales marketing, web services, service-oriented architecture, venture capital, bootstrapping, founding teams, venture capital firm, and so on and so forth. Uh, he is uh, a world-class stage venture capitalist as well. With that, Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Beautiful. And I think to our folks, I, I also want to say um, that, I, that I sort of missed out on, on, on your introduction, Andy, is that if you, are in, if you are a startup in Boston and you're in data science, like we are fortunate to have you, Andy, on that ecosystem. You're always sort of available for us. You have always sort of helped a lot of the startups uh, by giving your time and advice and suggestions. So I do appreciate everything and anything you do uh, to keep this, uh, this ecosystem really thriving. I, I do appreciate that. Oh, thanks. Appreciate that. So yes, uh, so let's 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 walk through your journey, Andy. Like, so if you can walk our, our listeners and viewers through your past and what bring you to the data science and what keeps you excited about this, that'll be fascinating. You bet. Well, I'm a I'm a software engineer by training, and um, at some point in my career, recognized I was never going to be as good of an engineer as as the computer scientists I like to hang around with, and so I morphed into sort of a tech savvy business person. And, um, and then in the 90s, was a pretty good time to be in software and especially distributed systems. And, and so did a bunch of startups, uh, you know, most notably uh, Trilogy and PC Order, as well as a, a company called Bow Street. And, you know, I, I really uh, enjoyed the, the time and it was really f- very fortunate. You know, we built a lot of software, sold a lot of software, made a bunch of money. But I I definitely had this feeling at the end of the 1990s, which is kind of like, how is the world any better or different? And that sort of pulled me into the life sciences uh, here in Boston. There's an amazing biotech community and uh, was really privileged to be a part of the team that uh, uh, started Infinity Pharmaceuticals. And uh, it was an amazing experience with a fantastic team of people that, uh, you know, I'm still close to today. And... um, uh, uh, it was really uh, amazingly powerful to work on a team whose mission was to make a difference in the lives of patients uh, by discovering important new cancer therapies. And um, it, but one one of the unexpected consequences of working in the life sciences, uh, you know, when we started Infinity, was 
this experience of, of working closely with large-scale data systems and analytics that in many ways what goes on in the life sciences or what has been going on for the last 30 years is actually a, a precursor to what the rest of uh, commercial companies are, are doing with data and analytics today. And so um, part of my, my you know, unexpected outcome from working both at Infinity and then later on at, at Novartis um, was learning what's required to do next-gen data and analytics at very large mm -hmm. scale at a much lower cost. And that this is a part of what inspired you know, me to work with my partner, Mike Stonebreaker, in starting Vertica and um, uh, in doing a number of other projects as, as well as uh, eventually starting Tamer. Interesting. Um, thank you for, for, for a walkthrough. Um, so we currently you are involved with Tamer. So if you can walk us through what, what Tamer does and what's, what's, what are they helping with? Yeah, Tater's, Tamer's focus is on data curation and unification at very large scale. And Mike and I had experienced over and over again this problem when people were building and deploying large aggregated data systems, data warehouses, for lack of a better term, that the key bottleneck was how quickly and dynamically they could instrument new sources um, into the, those aggregated data systems. The hypothesis that if you applied uh, modern machine learning techniques uh, to the integration of the data and use pro a probabilistic approach, uh, to, to modeling data, that you could add new data sources very, very quickly to your infrastructure and use the power of, of, of machine learning models uh, to actually pre-prepare the data uh, for all the people that needed to use that data and consume it. And, and so we did an academic project at, at MIT for two years, uh, and then we started the company uh, about uh, five years ago and based on that research at MIT. And now I think we're to the point where we've proven it at fairly large scale that this kind of probabilistic modeling of, of data sources um, in large enterprises works incredibly well and delivers tremendous uh, business value. Uh, when you have these unified views of key data entities inside of large companies, you get a lot, there's a lot of low-hanging analytic fruit to be picked just by organizing the data more effectively. Interesting, interesting. And and if you can walk us through your role um, in Tamer, like what do you do or what, how do you spend your, your day in Tamer? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. I, I pride myself on on founder culture, and you know, uh, Mike and myself, and you know, our, uh, our partner Ehab, uh, who's a professor up at Waterloo, Ehab Elias, um, along with a, a core group of of great engineers, Alex Pagan, George Pascalis, and Dan Bruckner. Mm -hmm. um, we all came together, worked on the academic project together, and then and then uh, started the company together. And we really try and maintain that founder culture. So technically, I'm the CEO, but I, I really pride myself first and foremost on being a founder. And the benefit of being a founder, uh, unlike any other sort of functional title that you might take, is that it's, uh, it's an immutable role that no matter what changes in the company, um, you know, you're always going to be a, a, a co-founder. And uh, I really pride myself on that. And it's fun because you get to work on whatever's most important in the company at any given point in time. And I've got a great leadership team here at Tamer, and they, they do they do such a fantastic job that uh, a big part of 
my responsibility is to uh, stay out of their way and um, help get them whatever they need in, in order to, to be successful. Interesting. Um, thank you for walking us through that. I think whenever so, um, so data right now is pretty much what IT used to be a couple of uh, maybe decades back now. So I think you're the guy where like I have heard the word data ops from you. Let's say, what do you mean by data ops? Like if you can walk us through, uh, and it's it's say so yeah, that will be awesome. So 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 we we've seen this trend emerging over the last five years. And, uh, you know, I saw it as a, a, you know, when I was running software and data engineering over at, uh, you know, Novartis's research group, as well as at Infinity. And the, the trend is, you know, a desire for uh, a lot more people to use a lot more of the, the data that exists inside of the company, uh, any given company. And, and so it's very similar when DevOps emerged um, uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s. The goal of DevOps was to deliver feature velocity for large uh, for for the internet companies, uh, enable them to build, test, and release software more quickly that would differentiate them. Um, data ops is very similar, uh, but the goal of data ops is to build, test, and release data uh, and deliver it to uh, everyone inside of a large company uh, to enable analytic velocity inside of their companies get more people prosecuting more data and using that in their day-to-day -day work um, uh, with a higher degree of reliability. And so inside of this broad concept uh, uh, and vision of, of data ops, there are a number of different key components that are still in the pro process of emerging. So one of the, the key capabilities that you need is raw source cataloging. So this is mm. uh, projects like Apache Atlas and vendors like Alation and Waterline are delivering really great commercial and open source solutions for doing raw source cataloging. At the other end of the, the spectrum, closer to the, the analysts and the consumers, you have self-service data prep. And so mm -hmm. these are tool, uh, tools from companies like uh, uh, Alteryx and uh, Trifacta and Paxata that enable uh, analysts, each analyst, to actually join a small number of data sources together in order to serve whatever analytic purpose they have. Now, in between those uh, raw source catalogs and the self-service prep tools, there are a number of different functions that are required in a healthy data ops ecosystem. One of those things is large-scale data pipelining uh, that's highly automated. And one of my favorite projects there is the Airflow, Apache Airflow project, mm. uh, which originally started at Airbnb. Many of our customers are increasingly relying on Airflow uh, as a primary tool set for orchestrating their, uh, their Python pipelines. Uh, a second set of uh, uh, tooling that's required is uh, the, the privacy, uh, security, and governance. And uh, one, of, one of my favorite uh, vendors there is uh, Calibra, uh, for example. And then, um, uh, then there are these other functions. Tamer provides a function that is uh, logical data modeling and data unification that complements the data pipelining and the data governance work. And so it's the combination of best of breed tools in each one of these areas that when combined together and, and uh, through RESTful interfaces, actually gives you this data ops kind of capability inside of your company. And I think it enables the chief data officers inside of these companies to become like the data broker inside of their enterprise. And the, one of the coolest parts about it is that unlike 10 
10 or 15 years ago where you had to buy this kind of stuff from bit one big vendor that was going to sell you a huge platform. Now you get to cherry pick these best of breed tools uh, from really cool uh, vendors and assemble the things that work for you in a way that works for you. So very much like the DevOps ecosystem works where you get to pick for source code management, whether you want to use GitHub or Subversion, you get to pick all kinds of stuff out of the Atlassian suite or New Relic. Um, and you combine those things in order to do modern DevOps. We think that data ops ecosystem is going to be very similar where it's a combination of tools that are loosely coupled together. Um, and some of those tools will be proprietary pieces of software. Some of them will be uh, free and open source. Interesting. So I and, think uh, yeah. it's, a really, it's a really exciting time because uh, the amount of money that big companies spend on their mm -hmm. legacy data structure is very, very large. And I, I think that most big companies have the sense that they're not really getting the bang for the buck and that they're looking to do something significantly different. Interesting. So, like, at what time uh, in in the in the inception of a company should I worry about something called data ops? Like, at, so what would be that that perfect pivotal moment for for me? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Well, it, it depends a lot. I mean, the, the, the cool part is in, in startups, uh, mm -hmm. in a lot of the startups that I work with, they're already doing data ops. Uh, you know, maybe maybe they don't call it that. But again, mm -hmm. the very fact that something like Airflow sort of came out of Airbnb is a great example that, you know, modern, you know, the modern internet companies and startups, the real advantage that they have is they have a greenfield. Um, and so they get to build things from scratch. And... Uh, if you look at Cloudera and Hortonworks and the sort of the popularity of HDFS over the last, uh, you know, 10 plus years, it really all started with uh, the big internet companies uh, wanting to do something else uh, instead of uh, using traditional relational database systems to manage their log files. And so I think you have a similar pattern here where younger companies will develop these uh, design patterns, uh, again, you know, sort of loosely called data ops, to do things like automated data pipelining. And then bigger companies over time will have the ability to adopt those and deploy them at, at large scale um, and, and take advantage, kind of stand on the shoulders of the, a lot of the work that these big internet companies have done. And, and some small companies, like another one of my favorite uh, vendors in the data ops ecosystem is uh, Data Kitchen here in in Boston, uh, the Data Kitchen guys have this incredible automated data pipelining tool uh, set and, you know, very, very cool stuff. So for companies like Data Kitchen and Trifacta and ourselves and Alteryx, uh, you know, we all live data ops every mm -hmm. single day. Um, and then for big companies, uh, like many of our customers at Tamer, whether uh, GSK is a great reference where they have an amazing data ops ecosystem at GSK that consists of 11 different vendors, each of which brings some combination of best of breed tools. And the chief data officer at GSK, Mark Ramsey, has done an amazing job of building a next gen infrastructure at a very, very low cost uh, that provides next gen data functionality inside of GSK. And we see lots and lots of other big companies that are doing a similar kind of a thing, whether it's in biopharmaceuticals or uh, discrete manufacturing or financial services. Interesting. 
And I think when he was when he was talking about sort of um, this this how that how the, this industries are shaping up, I think one thing I was thinking about is one of one of my interactions with one of the CIOs and and he and his so he gave me a, pretty much his perspective on what's happening and his his outlook was Vishal, you know what, um, the culture of how organizations are shaped is changing nowadays. So we are seeing a lot more shadow groups emerging. Almost every department has their own shadow, and 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 what keeps me sort of barely sleeping through the night is i cannot manage my 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 sort of load of stuff with this this kiosk and now you talk about um devops like structuring them and, and sort of data ops you coined a beautiful term to help them and and and, and the, on the other side there's a data exhaust going on like everything you touch spew wow. out um, uh, enormous amount of data and this and his his, his panic attack his, his panic attack is like i'm already losing that battle between the data and the DevOps. So yeah. what, what's your thought on that? Well, I really think that, uh, you know, anytime there is change, uh, there's anxiety. And mm. I think we're, we are going through a massive change. And this belief that there is a huge amount of data that's being generated as exhaust from all the business process automation we've all done for the last 40 years. Um, and that there's this desire to uh, consume that data in useful ways, but it's really hard and complicated. I, I think that's a, uh, it's kind of where we are. And um, now over the next five or 10 years, I think it's going to change dramatically. And the key here is that um, it, it, the enterprise needs to pick up and learn some of these lessons from the modern internet companies. So if mm. you remember way back in the, in the, uh, in the mid nineties, um, we're both probably old enough to remember, you know, the, the first days of Yahoo and Yahoo mm. had this, you know, sort of set of uh, organization or classifications of websites on the left-hand side of, of, mm. of their page. And they had thousands of library scientists who at Yahoo that were employed, and their job was to go to websites and say, oh, this is a, a, a finance page, and this is a mm. travel page. And, and then those classifications that were manually developed actually made their way into those lists of websites that Yahoo provided. And along comes Google and says, well, we think there's a better way, which is mm. to use modeling, essentially, to create these indexes that are going to match all the web content that's out there in the world uh, with whatever search terms people type in and very very quickly that model-based or probabilistic approach sort of overtook this deterministic method for organizing data on the modern web one of the things that we believe at tamer is that there's a similar opportunity inside of large companies their primary asset is not web pages it's tabular data sets uh, that are generated from this exhaust from business process automation. And that when you use models to organize this data, you can actually make it very generally and easily available to lots of people in a unified way. But what goes on at most companies right now, as, you just, as your friend described, is a very deterministic approach. It's the same mm. as all of those library scientists trying to manually classify every single web page in the modern web. And it's just not something that can be done with manual effort. Now, changing that behavior pattern inside of these big companies is hard because there's a lot of people mm. that are employed to do this deterministic curation and manipulation of data. And so replacing... Uh, those, you know, uh, all that work that those people do with models and then finding other higher value add work for those folks to do is a huge change, not only for the people, but also the organizations that they inhabit. And it's going to take probably decades to kind of play out. 
But when we've done this at large scale, at places like uh, GE or, or GSK or uh, Little Fuse or a uh, creative artist agency, um, the impact of organizing this data is liberating for these companies. And actually, you know, that frustration that your friend has um, mm. turns into enthusiasm and uh, for the opportunity uh, that data inside of these enterprises provide because you can get a lot of benefit very, very quickly. At GE, we were able to sort of realize many tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of dollars of of uh, cost savings very quickly just by organizing the data in their procurement uh, on the procurement side of their business. So, you know, there, again, there's this low hanging fruit, analytic fruit to be picked if you just mm -hmm. organize your data using this model based or probabilistic approach. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website First Friday Fair dot tao dot ai and find your next dream job let's get back to the podcast interesting so from your perspective like what are some of the steps that i i as an executive on uh, say a, a mid to large size corporation who is going through this panic attack could do to sort of uh, besides doing uh, say meditation or yoga that could help me actually get something done yeah. So the, the first thing that i think is is really important is to recognize that your data is an asset and, you know, as an asset of your company, it's no different than money. And uh, big companies don't leave their cash laying around under the desks of uh, all the people uh, that work in their company. And yet when it comes to managing their data, that's kind of how a lot of people treat it. And so the first step uh, to take uh, in your organization is to declare that data is an asset. The second thing is to figure out what you have. And that starts with raw source cataloging. As I mentioned, Apache Atlas or Alation, Waterline, very natural tools to use as you start cataloging what uh, tabular data assets are available inside of your company. And then uh, as you do that, you also want to reach out and look analytically for use cases that uh, where people desire to consume data in a very impactful way. Um, usually to either save money or to help the company grow faster. And as you cherry pick the best analytic use cases and the data sources that are required out of your, your catalog, um, you can start to prosecute those. And very much like the work that we've done at, at some of these very large companies, um, once you have one or two examples where you've been successful in saving tens or hundreds of millions of dollars or uh, uh, helping the company grow much faster, uh, it's it's uh, it's very compelling, and then everybody kind of you know gets in and wants to do it. But Interesting. Going through that pro process though is a lot of work and a lot of change, and you have to do it once or twice first. Uh, and so we really encourage our customers when they're starting off, take a very agile approach. Don't do a big boil the ocean project. Do something where you can get analytic benefit in small number of months, uh, not quarters or years. Interesting. And and from your vantage point, like what are some of the things that you have seen businesses not getting when it comes to sort of managing the data properly? Like what are some of the common mistakes or some sort of common areas where you see businesses could rather do a better job and from what you are seeing right now? Yeah, so I, there's a long list. And having, having been a CIO and, mm. you know, been on the buying side of these kinds of technologies as many times as on the selling side, um, these are my problems as well, and I, I share my customers' frustration as they deal with these problems every single day. Um, 
I think that one of the one of the largest things is to uh, uh, that many many people tend to focus on software rather than data. And as, as one of my good friends who uh, is a chief data officer at a you know Fortune 50 company likes to say, data is the queen. Um, mm. Data is 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 truly this asset, and it's easy to sort of get distracted on software engineering and all these things that you could go build. Um, but the real asset is the data. And I've made this mistake myself of focusing too much on the software and not, not as much on the data engineering and the data science. And so I, I think that's a first, you know, sort of potential pitfall is hmm. don't worry about the software so much. Focus on the data itself. The second thing is talent in, 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 in tooling that, uh, you know, I think that the reason why a lot of these big companies are in the position that they're in uh, in terms of the 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 sort of uh, lack of flexibility and agility in their data infrastructure is because they're wedded to some of these legacy technologies and and uh, uh, the the drag coefficient that's created by those. Um, I think you have to abandon some of that and look for new people uh, that are you know sort of more cutting edge and are, are you know changing assumptions and if, if, if you do the, the same thing, right, pay Teradata or Informatica a ton of money over and over again, that you're going to get the same results. Mm. Like you're not going to get anything different than you've had over the last 20 or 30 years. But if you really want to move the needle, you have to, you know, uh, take some risks and, and put some money behind some of these early vendors. And, and when you do that, there'll be times when things don't work. And There'll be a lot of uncertainty and things, but there will also be potentially very, very large wins that you probably couldn't have gotten uh, with the more traditional vendors and the uh, more dogmatic technologies. Interesting. And and I think that's a very valid point, right? So this this ecosystem is shifting and many of those businesses are still, still sort of hung on to uh, business as usual uh, sort of infrastructure and it's very difficult to now go and 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 pick the next shiny object when sort of your critical components are at stake and it and they're sort of churning out a lot of revenue for you so if you are a, an executive in that in that sort of ecosystem and and you are stuck with this mindset of hey doing business as and and sort of you are, you want to get to the next shiny object but you're not getting sort of buy-in that you want what are some of the thoughts that you could suggest to that particular stuck individual sort of how they can they can create that buy-in to, to, to experiment with, with folks like uh, interesting innovative solutions. Yeah, I think you have to act very agilely um, in, the, in the short term and like try a lot of stuff, but you have to have sort of a long-term perspective to this. I was talking to a CIO uh, a month or two ago who described a four-year process to mm. uh, unhook their data from their infrastructure. And uh, they were three and a half years into this, so they were getting close to the end of, you know, uh, you know, sort of their dependence on Teradata. And uh, they, you know, it was a significant spend for them, you know, more than a hundred million bucks a year kind of money that they were they were spending. And so they were going to take some of that benefit as savings. They were going to take some of it, maybe 25 or, or 30 million as uh, you know, the infrastructure required to replace whatever Teradata was doing before. And then they freed up another $50 million to go work on cool new stuff. And so that person, you know, uh, had to make that decision four years ago and had to believe that it was possible and then had to do a series of things to sort of replace all the things that Teradata was doing. And so, uh, you know, uh, he had a, a very long-term view 
Um, and he also took a lot of short-term risks and a lot of experiments uh, that, that, that paid off in a big way, letting him run his infrastructure, this is feature for feature, for a quarter of the cost. And um, so, so it's, but it's a very, very challenging thing to do in big companies. And, and uh, uh, I think that so many CIOs are burdened with 80, 90% of their spend in legacy. I, I know I was that uh, it's really hard to get out of that, 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 that cycle. And, um, but the time is right to do it. There are enough cool new tools and they've developed well enough that you can actually get away with it today. Where, whereas maybe, you know, 10 years ago when I was doing a bunch of this stuff at Novartis, uh, it was a lot, it was a lot harder. Uh, it was possible, but a lot harder. And so it's, I think it's getting easier every, every quarter as, as the data ops ecosystem kind of evolves. Interesting. And I think, so um, I was just thinking about um, one of my interactions with one of the Fortune 50 um, senior executive around. So he was telling me that um, they acquire about, I think, 17 companies every year and they mm -hmm. successfully integrate three and mm -hmm. they have a backlog of like 21 years. And this is many of this company that they probably acquire will not even like they will go obsolete before they even get to that. Yeah. When you have when you have that much craziness going on, and then the the other sort of conversation is all the businesses nowadays are getting epified. They're sort of in a very small crisp use cases that, that they're working on. Yeah. It's a nightmare scenario for IT, right? So it's 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 difficult. They have to do a lot more uh, sort of working through this this diverse ecosystem. And you coined the a great term data ops, right? So I think. Uh, one thing that I was I was recalling from the conversation, what you say, what if I just get insights from those businesses till they figure out yeah. their their thing, right? At least I should know. So what's your thought on that? Yeah, well, we've done this with a bunch of our customers. The post MA integration, you know, mm -hmm. use case for Tamer is very strong because you know, Tamer is really designed to make it really easy to add new data sources and, you know, minimizes the amount of manual effort required to get a unified view. And so the first thing you want to do after you acquire a new company is, well, I want to see the you know unified view of all the customers, the acquired companies in mine, and uh, all the suppliers and all the things we buy from them and all the things we sell to their customers. And so with Tamer, because it, it, it makes that an automated and a model-driven process, uh, you can do these kinds of activities in days and weeks instead of having to go out and hire consultants that are going to take months or years or to do this thing. And, and when you make it that more, when you make the velocity that high, um, you find that whether in the M&A side, if you're trying to realize spend optimization opportunities across the newly acquired company, these become things you can do in less than, than three or four weeks. Um, and, and when you can do things that fast on the business side that are enabled by better technology, um, it really empowers people, right? Because people in big companies, they're just sort of fatigued with everything taking mm -hmm. you know, quarters and years and they change jobs and all this stuff. And so if you can't do something fast, like it's kind of really, really hard to sort of keep it going. And so, so we see this a lot with Tamer. And that design pattern of adding new data sets really, really mm -hmm. quick, popular data sets really quickly, it's no different than, again, when, the, when new websites come online on the modern web, uh, you just know that Google is going to index them and make them available to you. You just assume it. The same thing should be true inside of big companies when uh, you go and acquire a company. Um, it should be a normal course of practice that that newly acquired data, uh, uh, data uh, especially around key entities like customers and suppliers and employees, that that stuff automatically gets integrated and is available mm -hmm. for analysis very, very quickly, like within days. 
Um, and Interesting. You, can't do it, you can't do it that fast with manual F methods or deterministic methods, right? You, it has to be automated and model driven. Interesting. So, so from from your perspective, like uh, if if we consider the same use case, right? So, mm -hmm. do you think that um, something like data ops will would gain a lot more credibility and traction compared to dev or, or DevOps? Or DevOps will sort of lose sight when when it's too much chaotic and you can't even engage anymore. So, what do you uh, think? Yeah, I think data data ops is really the very logical evolution of mm -hmm. uh, DevOps and data engineering. And so, if I was drawing a picture of it, it would be uh, you know data engineering on one side and DevOps on the other, and uh, data ops in between. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of overlapping mm -hmm. both of them. And so I think there's a very logical evolution here. Uh, it's not instead of or in replace of, but you know, as people figured out how to use automation to aggressively build test and continuously build test and release software, I think with data ops, they will start to figure out how to automatically build test and release data and continuously do that um, inside of their inside of their environments. And even the popularity of, of architectures like uh, Lambda and Kafka, I think, are a great, you know, sort of uh, uh, precursor for, for modern uh, data ops, that it's the kind of design pattern where you're doing things both in streaming and as well as batch at the same time in an integrated way. That it's a very it's sort of a core principle inside of, of data ops. And so there's all these trends that have been developing independently, people doing work that makes sense and manifest into open source projects, into all kinds of tools. And these things are sort of now sort of merging together into, you know, what people will call data ops. Yeah. Interesting. And 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 from your vantage point, um, probably from Tamer end, so if you talk to a lot of these clients, um, and, and uh, what are some of the things that you're pleasantly surprised with that businesses get it? Like, what are some of the things that you could say, hey, I don't have to sell you this now, you pretty much like, you, you are selling me that back. Okay. Well, you know, there was there was a period of like four or five years ago when we when we started Tamer, um, I used to go around and do this evangelical thing about data as an asset, where I would say, mm -hmm. well, you're the chief data officer, the chief information officer, you should be like the CFO, but for data and information. And so, if you go and ask this chief financial officer, um, where does your money come from? What mm -hmm. money do you have? And where is it being spent? Uh, mm. They could show me in great detail every where every penny goes and where it comes from, and what they have. Um, but on the CIO and CDO side, it was like uh, crickets. Mm. You know, um, well, we have a lot of Oracle databases and we have a lot of file stores, and there's some people that use analytics, but we kind of don't know it, and we have a bunch of models. So there was no sort of systematic approach or automate much less automated approach to, to doing this stuff today. Uh, many of the, the customers that we talk to, they start by saying, we're interested in managing our data as an asset, and we've begun cataloging our raw data sources. And so I think they're, there's, they're, these big companies are figuring out that they have to do this. They have to use their data as an asset. Uh, if for no other reason, there's a competitive dynamic. I mean, Credit Amazon was sort of you know waking everyone up to believing that they need to use data and AI as a competitive weapon in their business. And, um, and so they're, they're starting to do this. Now, the challenge sometimes is that uh, when big companies prosecute this, they start with where the data comes from, and then they mm. catalog that, and then they kind of move down to where uh, people are consuming the data. The challenge is that sometimes you can get, you know, just cataloging the data can take years. And so 
Um, you really have to, you know, think about these things in a very broad way uh, and very, very long term with these capabilities inside of data ops. But also you have to prosecute and build out projects that go cradle to grave from data all the way through to analytic outcome and do that in short number of months. And sometimes in big companies, they can kind of polarize into either doing things that are fiercely tactical or doing things that are too big, boil the ocean kind of things. And so mm. data ops done really well is a combination of both long-term core principles for the infrastructure you need in the long term to manage data as an asset very broadly, and also the prosecution of specific analytic use cases where you're going to get value and make sure that the infrastructure that you're building is actually what people need and the sources that people care about and that are going to have the biggest impact on your business. Interesting. Um, and, and, and like, so in data science world nowadays, like what are some of the big opportunities that you're seeing that still sort of is not, are not being served that you think um, businesses or maybe the future startups could address? I think that there are, there are a couple of things that are, that, that are really key that are going on. The first one is uh, understanding uh, privacy and governance. And one of the problems that I think people, uh, the traps that people fall into with regards mm -hmm. to privacy and governance as thinking about it as an activity of control. Uh, mm. So naturally say, well, we, we uh, uh, govern the data and we uh, in ensure privacy by controlling who has access to it. And I think it's a bit of a red herring. Um, there's so much data and it flows in so many different ways that um, if you start a project believing that you can control it all, uh, and it control access, it's almost never ending. It's infinite. You kind of never get there. I think instead, it's much healthier to focus on how data is used and consumed and make sure that you're aligning uh, the, the consumption of data with appropriate use. So lots of logging about who's using data and how they're using it. And then so over time, mapping that back into policies about governance in terms of who's entitled to use data for, for what purpose. And so if you invest more in understanding and managing uh, the appropriate use at the point of data consumption, that's a very powerful way to get to better data governance and privacy. If you invest in trying to control access to data, um, I, I think it's a bit of a dead end. You, you almost always never get uh, to the kind of control that you need. So the second thing, yeah. So the second sort of thing that people struggle with is this idea of, of uh, a data pipelining at large scale. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many companies, most of their data pipelines are written in Python. They're very idiosyncratic mm -hmm. and they're relatively unmanaged. And so this is where I think tools like uh, Airflow, um, Apache Airflow and Data Kitchen, I think are really, really powerful tools that enable you to do automated data pipelining in a much more manageable way. And again, sort of dovetails into this discussion around governance that uh, if you can uh, you automate the data pipelines in a, in a reasonably consistent way, then you get all this visibility and control uh, over how data flows through those pipelines. And that gives you much better, uh, greater opportunities for for governance and control of privacy. And so, um, you know, the enemy of, of, of great governance and appropriate use is idiosyncratic pipe, data pipelining. And, um, you know, we're in the earliest days of people in big companies kind of getting their heads around that. Interesting. I think, so on, on that note, I, I, I definitely, so one thing that, that I am curious to learn from you um, is 
So we are seeing this AI phenomenon nowadays. A lot of lot of sensors are using AI. And I was talking to one of the executive at GE at one point in the past that hey, um, like I I wear a Fitbit or I wear sort of a, and I I watch and I now I just go to Europe and then I go to India and go I go to which wherever. Every time I land on a country, the the data drops in, data drops up, and you are in 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 the in the regulatory environment of that sort of ecosystem nowadays. And I think you are pointing out a very interesting point on the governance of 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 a lot of this this perspective. So. How much of this data ops, like from your perspective, is is really burning businesses down because of this sort of boundaries and sharing and sort of those like and and on the other side, AI has maybe no respect for some of these boundaries. And and you raise an interesting point. If your model is idiosyncratic, like it's it's very difficult. If if your model has the loopholes, AI has nothing to do with it. It's just just executing on on your framework. So how much flex sort of how much sort of it's throwing businesses on the loop of maybe I won't be able to win this battle of managing my data properly. Yeah, so so I, I think uh, pragmatics work really well here. And, you know, so many people are so excited about AI. And as, you know, I started my career in AI back in the mid-80s. And so, uh, you know, I feel very close to, you know, these concepts. But um, as Andrew Lau likes to say, and as, you know, I've heard many people for many years have said that uh, in, in the AI community that, um you kind of you don't want to put the AI cart before the data horse, and mm. um, you know, putting your data first uh, is, is what makes the AI really powerful. And so, and the great examples of this, I mean, you don't have to go any further than neural networks, which um, you know uh, there were some good examples, but none as as powerful as Google Translate. Uh, in terms of the use of neural networks. And the reason why Google Translate really worked was they had all this data at very large scale that was uh, you know, high enough quality to, to, to really make the, the neural networks work. And so I think the same principle sort of applies very broadly to, to data inside of companies that are is generated as exhaust inside of all these data silos that if you don't have uh, your, your data kind of organized in a reasonable way and of a sufficient quality, you're not really going to get the bang for the buck out of any of the uh, AI mm-hmm. techniques and these algorithms. The other, the other thing that you allude to is this question of uh, uh, control and the flow of data across mm-hmm. different boundaries, whether those are geographic boundaries or company boundaries. And, um, you know, I think GDPR is, is kind of the most popular mm-hmm. current mm-hmm. reference for that. And we have a lot of customers that are very, uh, you know, global 2000 companies that uh, are interested in doing this data unification. Mm-hmm. We see this a lot. And there, there, there's, uh, I, I think the real challenge here, uh, again, is, is more focusing around use and consent. Um, and one, one, of our, one of our customers at, at Toyota Motors in Europe is a great example where um, we help them unify data from lots of different geographies across all of Europe. And it's a very challenging thing to do. Uh, because they have very heterogeneous dealer management systems across Europe. Um, But you want to provide a single unified view of their customers, primarily to serve those customers. And a key part of doing that data unification uh, and complying with all all the appropriate regulations is getting the consent uh, from the person who generates the data, the customer themselves, that you can use that data in order to serve them as a customer. And you can use it in an integrated way and across all these different boundaries. Uh, 
countries. And so I think one of the things that's missing from the GDPR discussions and the way that most people refer to it, they think of it as putting up walls uh, across mm. these uh, across these boundaries. And actually, it really is much more mm. about getting consent from the people who uh, uh, generated the data and own the data, uh, theoretically, um, or responsible for the data, uh, getting their consent to use the data in a way that's going to benefit them, regardless of whether that means, you know, taking it across boundaries or combining it with other data. And so I, I really hope in the next five, you know, years that uh, the technology vendors, as well as, you know, uh, large customers themselves, they start to change the emphasis from, you know, control uh, you know, over to consent uh, for how data is used and defining appropriate use for for for, for data in various contexts. Interesting. Now, now let's uh, let's spend a few minutes on 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 your journey uh, as, as as an entrepreneur uh, building this amazing data science company and supporting these data science companies. So, what are some of some of commonalities that if, if you could pick out from your successes and any successes you backed? that you could share that that really sort of uh, build up your perception of, hey, if any startup or any business has attained these sort of qualities, they are they are doing a right thing and probably they, they, they are in a, on the right track. Yeah, well, I think I think this is, you know, one of one of the uh, companies and products that my partner, Mike Stonebrick and I are most proud of is, is a company called Vertica uh, that we co-founded back in, in 2004. And um, we're, we're extremely proud of the technology and, and the impact that it's had on the industry, uh, as well as, uh, and, and most importantly, probably the benefit that it's created for um, all, all of their, their, their customers uh, at very large scale. And so I, Mike and I believe uh, that e even though we spend a lot of our time on sort of the academic side of computer science, that um, any of these ideas or design patterns, uh, unless it benefits customers at large scale, uh, it's it's really difficult, you know, to justify why why it should exist. And so, Mike and I, we think that one of the characteristics of the best companies is that they are, uh, you know, really irrationally committed to what their customers want and need and we really try and practice that at, at, at Vertica, companies like Vertica and Tamer uh, where we prioritize what our customers want. It's really hard to do in B2B tech because mm. any one person inside of a large company might have a an idiosyncratic view of what it is mm. they want, what's important to them uh, and you know you go from you know the people on the on the ground all uh, both on the technical and the business side all the way up through to the you know senior executives and the CEOs of these companies, and it represents a plethora of different mm. perspectives about what's most important and what they need and want uh, from their uh, information and infrastructure. Um, and so, one of the challenges, and I think one of the things that differentiates great B two B tech companies, is the ability to uh, take into account all of those different personas and perspectives and opinions about what they need and want and balance them as you're building out technical infrastructure and delivering solutions to customers um, so that uh, the company gets the broadest benefit it possibly can and the highest ROI possible um, over a long period of time. And, and most companies are forced into this decision uh, where you do something that's much smaller and focused and you have a more transaction relationship with your customer. Many SaaS companies are kind of like that or something that's much broader and bigger and more horizontal. Um, and uh, But your relationship with the uh, between the customer and the vendor is much broader and um, uh, 
you know, sort of, uh, you know, more difficult to turn into a transactional uh, kind of a thing. And so I think that that is always a key decision that any mm. any great B2B tech company has to make is to how narrow and transactional and focused they want to be and how broad and aspirational um, they want to be. Interesting. And and I think um, you have done this thing multiple times. Like you have been successful and a lot of interesting stuff you have achieved. So in, in your journey in Tamer, like what are some of the big surprises that you still sort of use? Hey, you said getting in, I know, I, I, I figured it out. But then you realize, yeah. nah, you know, I, you know, I've I've left um, enterprise uh, technology uh, a couple of times, almost, and, and probably one of the biggest pain points for me has always been the uh, the cost and the duration of the sales cycles that are involved, mm. um, and and I think it's a problem both with how technology companies sell in in B two B as well as how the customers buy, and. Um, and so that that for me is a, a constant pain point. Um, and I wish I could say that it's changed a lot um, in the decades I've been doing this, but it really hasn't. And it's still very expensive and uh, very painful and both painful for the customers as well as for the vendors. And, you know, I, I sure hope that we're going to get out of this cycle at some point, but um, but I, I don't see any any end in sight. And part of it is, you know, run, running a large company, any big company is a very difficult thing. And, you know, uh, the big companies, they kind of have most of the software and the technical infrastructure that they need. And so I think one of the things that makes it especially hard nowadays is that the customers really need uh, help integrating things and bringing together, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we like to say at Tamer all the time that our, our job is to really enable these companies to take advantage of all the data that they already have and hopefully spending a relatively small amount of money in order to get a big value very, very quickly. And so, you know, there was a point at which companies didn't have network routers and they needed them and they didn't have databases and they needed them. But it's kind of not like that anymore. Most big companies, they actually have a lot of shelfware, um, software that they don't use in any way, shape or form. And so there's like a glut of, of software at a lot of these companies. And I think really great, great next gen enterprise tech companies, um, they're, part of their value prop is uh, enabling their, their customers to get value out of the technology and the data and everything that, that already exists. Um, it's standing on the shoulders of all that stuff and turning it into something valuable very quickly. Um, yeah. Interesting. And, and um, now let's talk about like your, like your um, sort of, um, journey. So what are some of the one to three traits that has helped you um, as an individual stay sane throughout this progression and stay tuned in? Like what are some of the, some yeah. of the sort of uh, fabric that you can share? Well, my, 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 part, my partner, Mike, and I did this uh, uh, edX course at one point about, you know, how to start software companies from our perspective. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the interesting moments, they interviewed us separately and they asked each one of us, so like, well, what do you appreciate about you know, the other person, right? What Andy, what do you appreciate about Mike? And Mike, what do you appreciate about Andy? And we actually said the mirror image. Um, my, my statement uh, about Mike was that um, I, even though he's an academic computer scientist and has done, you know, commercial startups, like I think his business intuition and his business sense is amazing. And he's uh, more qualified to do, you know, on the business side than anyone would ever probably give him credit. And when they interviewed him about me, um, he said, well, Andy's actually way more technical than anyone would guess. <laughs> for, uh, 
a founder CEO. And, um, and so I, I think, you know, uh, for me, I, I really love the tech. I love the engineering. I love software. I get paid to play with computers all day and work with people to play with computers. And I, if nobody, if I wasn't getting paid, I'd still be doing the same kinds of stuff. And so, you know, I, I've always been a mission-driven person. I love uh, working with technology. Uh, from the moment I touched a keyboard in, in seventh grade, I, I, I fell in love with, with the idea of working on software. So, um, you know, it, it, I, I think that that has, for me, always been a core. Because these startups that we do and these projects, we have a lot of risk in them, and most things fail. And, um, you know, you have to be really tolerant of failure. And one of the mm. things, easier to tolerate failure is if you love what you're doing and you actually like the work itself if the project you're on or the startup you're on doesn't really work out you're like oh well you know you always want it to be successful but if it doesn't you're like well it was a good shot on goal and um, so I think that kind of an attitude if you're doing this early stage stuff I, it's really kept me uh, emotionally healthy <laughs> um, in the process. because if, if all you want to do is make money there are much easier ways to make money than starting stuff <laughs> Interesting, and 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 uh, thank you so much, Andy. So we're almost at the at the tail end of the conversation. So um, one thing we ask all of our guests is to share their favorite reads or share their favorite books that they could share with our listeners or viewers. So, like, do you have some of your favorite reads that you couldn't share? Yes, uh, you know, um, uh, it, my favorite book right now is is uh, Enlightenment Now, uh, which uh, thanks to Bill Gates for promoting it. I, I mean. Mm. I, I'm I'm through my second or maybe third read now, and like it's fantastic. Um, and you know, as a data guy, uh, you know, uh, you know, Pinker, like he does an amazing job of bringing data to life and using data to tell stories. And um, with all the crazy things that are going on in the world, um, to to have this context that. Uh, our world is actually becoming a much better place every single year, uh, even even mm. though you not realize that when you when you watch the news. Um, you know, it is a, it's a fantastic book. Uh, I re really, you know, Enlightenment Now is 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 absolutely um, amazing. And then the the other one, I'm also a, a science fiction freak, and uh, one of my other fa favorites in the last few years has been the Three Body Problem. Um, which is mm. written by a, a Chinese science fiction author. Uh, really great book and a great series and a huge fan of uh, Three-Body Problem. And I think they're going to make a movie now, so I'm really getting, looking forward to that. <laughs> Interesting. And, and uh, so uh, last but not the least, uh, we definitely want your perspective on our, our listeners and viewers if they want to take away from this conversation and, and what you're seeing in the ecosystem, what would that be? Like if you can give your closing remark, um, and sort of enlightening other sort of future leaders on uh, on sort of your journey and what they can take away from the conversation. Well, I think, you know, like I, a lot of people spend their time worrying about, well, what's the next wave? What's the next thing to hit the beach? And in the last uh, 10 or 15 years in technology, we kind of, this Hadoop wave kind of, of kind of hit the beach and that created a bunch of stuff and then and then the data science and spark wave kind of hit the beach i think the next you know uh you know wave to hit the beach is going to be data ops and mm. that uh, it's a very natural thing for us to figure out how to process uh, all this data in, in a more automated uh and and model driven way and and so you know as people are thinking about what to work on over the next five ten years 
Um, you know, I, I really believe that the principles behind data ops is a good place to invest your time, energy, and effort. Interesting. With that said, um, Andy, again, thank you so much for uh, coming to our show uh, and speaking your heart out about uh, your journey, about sort of what's going on in, in the ecosystem. Wish you nothing but success in uh, in the success of Tamer. Uh, looking for a again big uh, hairy exit uh, in Boston ecosystem. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much, and you're always welcome back on the podcast to share your journey, to share sort of your other successful areas. And again, uh, thank you very much for your entire support in the entrepreneurial community and and whatever you're doing to support other entrepreneurs that was really 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 helpful and we need folks like you so that there's a lot more churning going on creating interesting stuff for everyone well thanks michelle it's it's always great to to see you and, and great to catch up and look forward to doing it again awesome um I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it And I go into the booth feeling nervous Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless Is the mic on? I don't know how to work this Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on a certain